Let's visit the 90s all over again. Put on those hammer pants. This is Dope Nostalgia. Hello, friends. This is episode 172 of Dope Nostalgia Podcast. My name is Naomi, and I'm your host as always. Today's interview bleeds over the edges of the 90s into the 2000s because this person's debut album came out in 2001. But what really makes it tied up to the 90s is the fact that she was the first artist that ever worked under the Backstreet Boys label that the boys themselves created. Her name is Crystal, Crystal Harris. And she spent some time talking with me about what she's been doing in music over the last 20 years. So, hey, if you guys had her album, Me and My Piano, you must have absolutely loved it. She also contributed to the Princess Diaries soundtracks, but you're going to hear more about that during this Wikipedia moment. Wikipedia moment. Please bear in mind that Wikipedia is not to be taken as actual 100% fact. Any donkey could edit it at any time. If I'm reading you the artist's bio, that stuff is real truth. Crystal Marie Peterson, me, Harris, her maiden name, is an actress, singer-songwriter, and pianist known for her 2001 contributions to the Princess Diary soundtracks and for her album Me and My Piano. Her singing career was aided by the Backstreet Boys on tour, and as an actress, she appeared in the television film titled Save the Last Dance and in an episode of Touched by an Angel. Her debut album was called Me and My Piano, and it was released June 5th, 2001, right before the success of the film The Princess Diaries. She also provided her song Love is a Beautiful Thing for the film Legally Blonde. The song was remixed for the soundtrack. In 2002, she released the song The Kid and You for Disney's The Country Bears soundtrack, as well as appearing in the film as herself. She also guest starred as the lead role in the Touched by an Angel episode, season 9, episode 16, A Song for My Father. Additionally, she provided the singing voice for Velma at the end of the direct-to-DVD movie Scooby-Doo and The Legend of the Vampire. She later went by Miss Crystal and recorded an album titled Hip Hop Soul, Volume 1. It was intended to be released in late 2002, but never had the opportunity. In 2002, Harris played an art student in the Paramount TV movie called Save the Last Dance, based on the film of the same name. Set in an art school, she describes the concept as the next fame. Now in July 2013, she started performing as Crystal Peterson and the Queen City Band. They released an EP on iTunes named Spell. She now is settled with a beautiful family and an amazing music career. Please welcome Crystal to Dope Nostalgia. Welcome, Crystal, to Dope Nostalgia. We're a podcast that celebrates things that happened mostly in the 90s, but we bleed over into the 2000s as well. Makes um, sense. We're on, I was on the cusp anyway. 1999 is when I graduated high school. So it feels so like it sort of floated into the beginning of 2001 and two a little bit. Oh, you were super young then when this was happening then when, when yes. the music started. Yeah. Where are you where are you based out of now? I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. Nice. And I live in yeah. Western Canada. Nice. Yeah. I love Canada. Have you ever got a chance to tour up here or even oh, yes. just visit? Oh yes. Touring primarily. Um, the most recent time was when I was touring with Victor Wooten. He's a, a 
bassist that bass lovers would probably know about. Um, We were at the Montreal Jazz Festival and it was so much fun. Um, Mm -hmm. I also spent an extended time in Toronto when I was younger uh, in the early 2000s when I was filming Touched by an Angel. Oh, that's right. I lived there for like a month. (laughs) Yeah, Hollywood North. I think that's like more. Have you ever done, done Vancouver for filming or visiting? Not for filming, but, but for touring. Yes. Makes sense. Beautiful place. Oh Um, my gosh. Yes. It's amazing. (laughs) It sort of feels like a different world from the rest of Canada. Vancouver does. Absolutely. Like it's even like for, even just for like, I'm in Edmonton and that it just feels like a holiday going there. So Edmonton is gorgeous in the summer. We're a good festival (laughs) city. It is brown right now. The snow is melting. It oh my gosh. Gravel all over the roads. It's not pretty right now, but yes, other than that, it's beautiful. <laughs> this is probably people that, you know how we are as humans. We're kind of like, I like what I don't have right now. So I want to be in Canada and I think it's beautiful there. I'm wondering if yep. that's why I heard that. <laughs> oh, of course. So who were some of your musical heroes growing up? Who were you listening to? Who influenced your style? Oh, man. Um, Well, the first big influence I had was my mother. Um, Because I started singing so young. I mean, I, the earliest memory I have of singing was being placed on to a chair in front of someone in a church or a group of people in a church and being asked to sing and play the tambourine. And that was when I was like 18 months old. And I I mean, so at that time, the the primary person I was listening to was my mom uh, and my dad sometimes as well. So they were the first influences. And that's that's kind of the my mom really is kind of embedded in the gospel and R&B world, whereas my dad is is more in the folk country rock sort of world. So I I come from a perplexing array of (laughs) musical influences. But growing up. I immediately latched on to vocalists like Celine Dion, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that was because of the power that that they, it was like they could, they could change the atmosphere. They changed my atmosphere, my world, when I listened to their music. Um, and it was just so impactful to me. Michael Jackson was a huge influence for me mm-hmm. early on. Um, I loved the way he layered his vocals and sort of created an orchestra out of his voice behind him as the lead. Yeah. Um, I, early on, I latched onto the police and to Sting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I progressed, getting older and kind of, you know, growing out of being a kid and becoming an adult, I started to explore other influences um, that were more alternative at the time, like a Radiohead. Um or gosh, let me think. I mean, I loved all the '90s bands too: Pearl Jam, Counting Crows. I still love the Counting Crows so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my, I have a broad array of influences, and and even now, I'm I think I'm less and less rigid about my influences. You know, sometimes they're like purist people who are like, I'm I'm all soul all day, every day. That's all I like. You know what I mean? For <laughs> yes. me, I, it's like month to month or day to day. I'm kind of like, what music really? you know, do I need today to channel whatever I'm feeling? And I gravitate (laughs) toward that. But a lot of the earlier influences definitely continue to 
carry on and carry over for me today too. You know, it's all a puzzle of, of all the things over time. It, it usually is, especially with musically talented or musically inclined people tend to have a variety and don't stick with one thing. It seems to yeah. me that's the case. And yeah. so you were saying at the end of the nineties too, like you were finishing high school and yes. when did you start playing piano? Because that's obviously a big part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. So my mother is a, has been a piano player since she was a baby. Well, not almost a baby, three years old, a kid. Um, and so the piano started with me early being that my mother, it was kind of a core musical value of hers to make sure that I had some way to communicate my musical ideas and understand music from a more structured way, because she knew I wouldn't be able to collaborate with professionals at that time, because at that time, most professionals read charts, read music, and, and in order to make money doing that, you know, other than just gigging, you'd have to do studio work where you're kind of in a time bound situation, you've got producers and clients there, and you need to be able to read the music and communicate it really well, um, and dialogue about it in real time in order to be successful. So um, I started learning the piano, rather, she said to me, you need to start learning <laughs> when I was six. And I really enjoyed it for the first like four books. Mm. And then I got to the fifth book, and it was really getting hard and I got frustrated. And it's, it's kind of funny because I recently was talking to my husband about this. I said, I think my frustration at the time was not necessarily because I couldn't do it perfectly, but it was because I wanted so bad to play the music that, you know what I mean? I just was like frustrated. The theory, that I the theory yeah, gets in the way yes, of the creativity. Exactly. exactly. So to your point, my mother says, okay. I don't want you to have a breakdown over this, <laughs> essentially. Um, why don't I show you some chord charts and teach you how to improvise a little bit more and, and just go to where the chords are, what the melodies are that you're hearing in your head and go straight to making the music that way rather than having to transcribe, you know, because that's a very, again, it's a very classical way of approaching. It has a lot of value. I've used that throughout my life to, to communicate as well. But what I've used more is that here are the chord charts, here are the lead sheets, and we all know the map now, but we can create the territory as we move through the music. So yeah. that was the big revelation I had. And I had that revelation probably around 11, 12 years old. Um, and then just continued to use the piano as a way to solidify and write my own music. That's young too, very young. But I mean, when you start in piano generally, that makes complete sense. Yeah, it really does. You don't really hear about people starting in like their 20s and 30s. True. That's true. I think that's sort of a tradition in a way, because when you start to get into piano playing, I feel like the, I don't know, the the subject matter experts of that area are normally saying, you know, start early because it's easier to grow in that particular path if you start your muscle memory early because mm -hmm. a lot of that and the stringed instruments, other instruments are kind of the same way while your brain is forming. If you can get that habit in there, it's like learning a new language. Kids seem to be able to just pick up new languages. You know, it's because they're still so flexible and fluid. Their brain Don't is still developing. Yeah. So it does help it to stick uh, as your brain starts to get more solidified. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but it all ends up leading to this album, which I can't yes. get straight. <laughs> I'm upside down. <laughs> but I found I bought this when it came out, 
And even though I've let go of many CDs, I've always kept this one. I've kept oh. probably about 20 to 30 CDs from, from yeah. over the years, you know? Um, yeah. Cause this one, it, it meant a lot. There was a lot it, to me. There wasn't any filler on this album. Yeah. And I agree with that. What would you say for me, me and my piano was one of your favorite tracks that didn't become a single. Perfect question. It would be when you hurt. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that it, I think it, had I had the choice to 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 say you know here's the song I would put out first which I did not <laughs> have a choice in that matter really um, I would have probably picked that one and I think that's because and I can say this now that I'm 41 years old actually I feel like I've just sort of come into this understanding of what my passion for music really was early on mm-hmm. and why I still make music today. Uh, and it goes way beyond the business of it all. For me, it's a way to connect with people. It's a way to provide an environment where we can sort of be in a space of non-judgment and feel things we wouldn't normally feel, communicate things vibrationally, not just with words, but with sound. And that's so powerful. It's such a connector. And and it's almost like for me, that connector is a drug. It's like, I, I have to, I want to channel that. There's a hunger in me to channel that kind of thing and to connect with others and to triangulate those sort of spaces where we can feel things together that maybe we wouldn't normally be comfortable with. And that song talks about that. Essentially it's, it says, you know, I, I'm an empath and I am, and there are many others. Humans are sort of built that way. And in a way, many of us are, even if we're out of touch with it. And the song's just saying, I feel the hurt that others feel, you know, if I watch a video of someone that's suffering, I feel that suffering. And I think it's important that we remember that in our day-to-day lives because it's it's a super impactful and intense feeling that I think we all we all feel um, and at the time I think I was speaking to specific people in or about specific people in my world at that time but thinking about it now to me it goes a lot far beyond that I just didn't necessarily know how to articulate that at the time the articulation in this album in general was very mature especially at the time you being so young like um i i would say my favorite track would have been or someone else will oh sure yeah i do i do really enjoy that one and of course it's i an like angry, angel it's an angry one yeah i don't know there's it's just yeah the mood of it was different and just oh yeah kind of grabbed me um it's definitely an, different the song i'd always get stuck in my head is angel on my shoulder 
yeah. that is the chorus that would, you know, always, always catchy. Um, mm-hmm. And of course you're the reason. So I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. How did the connection with the Backstreet Boys happen? Yeah, sure. Um, so about at about age 16, I got a call from a producer that was um, in town working at a studio in Indianapolis. And um, when I went down to the studio, because they essentially they had some tracks, they wanted some new artist to sing. You know, when, so, when you're a songwriter, you're looking for artists that will, um, artists that will communicate the song well enough for you to sell it essentially. And so they were looking for somebody locally there to do that. And um, we went ahead and went down. My mom, I think my mom or my dad went down with me, if I recall correctly. And I sang this song that they had and they were, seemed to be shocked. And then they were like, well, let's, let's, let's hook her up with this other producer that we've been working with as well has been producing some of our tracks and see if we make a collab out of it how it works out. Mm -hmm. So we did that. And the producer that they hooked me up with ended up becoming my manager, uh, the manager of my, that career stint there, that three year, four year period where I recorded Supergirl and all the other stuff, Disney connection, all that stuff happened. Well, that producer had a close relationship at the time via his production with the Backstreet Boys in sync. A lot of the Jive records artists he had been working with because he was on that uh, Jive's Mm-hmm. Jive isn't even a thing anymore. It's kind of funny. All yeah. these have been bought by bigger companies, but oh, at man, the time, it's so powerful at the time. <laughs> I know, yeah. right? They had like yeah. all the major people, and they had a a publishing company called Zamba, and and he was a part of that publishing company. So he was working with even like Genuine, you know, a lot of the R and B acts as well. He was working with mm-hmm. Pink at the time, and um, and he took an interest and said, you know, let's let's record a demo. So we recorded some demos. You're the reason was on that initial demo that we recorded in Indianapolis mm-hmm. uh, on eight at machines. If any tech music tech heads know what that is, that no one uses those anymore. <laughs> but I they look like they video yeah, they look yeah. videotapes and <laughs> they go in and you record on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that we took that demo and we shopped it to pretty much all the major labels at the time that we could, Columbia, Epic, Jive, uh, Sony, we, we went all over with it. And ultimately my manager said, let, let me talk to the Backstreet Boys because I've heard that they're, they're actually wanting to start their own label, but they don't really have any artists lined up yet. Perhaps they'd be open to hearing about bringing you on. So he made that connection and quickly they, they scheduled me to, to come out to Los Angeles and, meet with Kevin Richardson mm-hmm. and we had a uh, lunch at a, some kind of cafe on Sunset Boulevard. I still remember it. And we talked and he seemed pretty ecstatic about the, the demo and that he wanted to move forward. So he shared some stuff with me about the, the label and we went, the rest is kind of history. we signed papers and, and we moved forward. And then after I graduated from high school in 1999, um, uh, just several months later in November, I moved to Los Angeles and started recording Supergirl there. Sounds like a whirlwind of activity. Uh, it really was fast looking back on it. Yeah. Um, oh, I should have said we were recording me and my piano. We were Supergirl was a part of that, but we started recording yeah. me and my piano. Yeah. I moved into some apartments in corporate apartments in Burbank. Um, they're mm-hmm. still there, but they're not called. I don't think they're called the same thing anymore. They used to be called the Oakwoods. 
and um, lived there for almost a year. And then not long after that, the Backstreet Boys offered for me to be on their tour as their opening act, which was, you know, a huge boost of invisibility. So we obviously no said, kidding. thank you. This is the perfect way to launch the record and to, to move forward. So you go straight from high school to performing in front of 20,000 people a night. Yes. Yes. How was it for stage fright? Like how, how did you, are you a natural performer on stage or was it like you had to grow into it a bit? This is such a good question because at the time, I don't think I really had any stage fright. For me, it always felt more like adrenaline back then. Mm. Like I would get ready to go on stage and I would just feel this rush of energy. My heart would start to race a little bit. And I thought, okay, okay. You know, the, like the moisture goes out of your throat. You start, <laughs> start to feel dehydrated. But it, yeah. it didn't feel like nervousness because I, I have a lot of experience with anxiety and panic attacks and things now. So it's it, it didn't feel like that then, which is interesting. And I've been performing, of course, for a lot of years up until that point. I mean, uh, 10, 12 years, really, um, yeah. on a professional level. So it wasn't anything new there. But as I started to prepare for the tour, I encountered some pressures that I wasn't used to. And the environment wasn't as supportive as I wanted it to be in my close circle. The, the Backstreet Boys were always supportive. Let me be clear about that. They were always very supportive, but they weren't necessarily in my world every day, day to day. I was an artist working with other people who were influencing what I was doing, helping yeah. me get ready for the tour. And they had nothing to do with that. And that environment started to close on me in on me a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I first remember starting to feel worry or anxiety around music. Um, I think I felt pressure before in my childhood, but we don't have to go into that. <laughs> but in the situation with preparing for that tour, I think I realized that I was, well, not that I could put these words behind it, but I think I realized that I was now a product of a company and that there were other people's livelihoods that were dependent upon me doing something a certain way based on their expectation. So my my desires were not really integrated very much in that process. It was more like, this is what you need to do. This is what you have to do. Do what I say. Let's, you know, like it was a lot. And I was used to more of a supportive environment where I was developing and still developing. And so I was hoping this was going to be an extension of development with, you know, really starting my career. And, and, uh, you know, cause I'm a, I'm a different vocalist and, and, and different musician today than I was back then. And, and a lot of that is because I've become my own developmental advocate. I, I started developing my own sound and things. Whereas when you're a product and you're talented, people are like, let's get the sound developed right now. Let's do it in the next six months. And that's not everyone is really good at being a coach, right? They're not really good at stepping in and advocating. I had an agent from William Morris though, who was, who was awesome, but because I was so surrounded by pressure and other things, I, I actually didn't even take her up on what she was offering. I look back on it now and I think she was prying in to try and understand <laughs> what I was in, what relationships were in my world and how she could try and influence that. And I just had a whole set of belief systems and mm. all kinds of things that were like we all do that were a part of my interpretation of the world at that time. So all good learned from all of it. I'm the woman I am today and I have more peace in my life and, and balance than I ever have. 
partly because that's how my, my career journey really began was Mm. as an adult or almost adult. (laughs) Yeah. And it's quite a burden to take on, like you said, worrying about other people's jobs, depending on what you're doing. And just the fact that you were able to take that experience and gain positive learning from it is is a good thing. Yeah. It was super tough. And I will say I had some moments where I felt like I was able to access an authentic space. And what I found from fans who have reached out over the last 20 years to me to tell me how much those songs meant to them, Mm -hmm. I realized that even in the midst of all the things I was processing and all of the crazy crap I was going through in the background, that my heart still somehow resonated through all of that. And that was really encouraging and always is encouraging to hear when people reach out, because I think there were parts of those songs that I was just trying to be honest in. Mm -hmm. And even though they didn't get publicized or pushed as hard as Supergirl, I still got the chance to say those things. And there were a lot of people that that heard them. And even with Supergirl, people say that. And I'm like, wow, I guess because that song says in it it's, it basically tells you that I'm struggling and that I don't understand how to represent myself in a situation where I'm used to other people kind of defining for me what my environment will be, you know, and, and supporting that in some way. Plus I'm growing up. I'm, I'm not even, I mean, I'm 17. I'm not, I don't, I'm just trying to figure out how to relate to the world as, as a grown woman, you know? And that's why I was saying, going back to the maturity of the album, first of all, for a debut album, the fact that you got to do so much of the writing is not very common. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess that's true. And your stories resonate deeply with people. They resonated with me because the things that you were saying really helped young ladies, I thought, you know, and and I could still listen to this album to this day and, and feel the same way that it was powerfully inspiring that, and it's interesting to see your perspective from the other side of it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, inter- it's an interesting thing. That whole, that whole situation almost at this point in my life seemed like a set up, not a set back as they say, because mm. again, I, I don't know because I was so used to the business of music from such an early age you know, the contracted side of it and working with producers and clients and stuff. I think I wasn't really, I didn't really understand what it meant to try and hold on to your heart and develop that in the midst of a business like that. Yeah. Um, I think I was naive, which who, who wouldn't be unless you had parents in the industry who had been through this and knew what to look for and were really also advocating for you for your benefit on some level or another. And I, and I didn't really have that. You know, my mom's exposure to the to the business is a little bit more on the the back end if you to use a technology term. She's doing the the background vocal session, she's coaching, she you know. So it's not in the you're now product and you're now taking your music and making it into a sellable thing and it's just a different situation. The machine really part of it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> it's a weird thing. I still struggle with it to this day um, mm-hmm. because I'm like, I just, I just want to make the music and I want it, I want it to be shared and I want to help others make their music and channel their hearts through what they're doing, whatever that might be. And that I've worked mm-hmm. with, I've done voc- a lot of vocal coaching over the co- course of my life. And I've worked with people that are professional musicians and vocalists that are highly visible and people that are 
mayors of cities or project managers or whatever. And all of them have have a good time at karaoke. And (laughs) that's actually that people have said that before, but it's funny. We end up getting, getting down to this just desire to express yourself, which is totally karaoke. Like that's people want to have a moment to just let their voice out. And I just love that experience of being one of those people that helps, helps folks get in touch with that. So a little bit different from how my career started. (laughs) It's fulfilling, right? And and you're motivating others. So it's a good place to be in, I think. Yes, for sure. For sure. listeners i love you and i thank you so much for being a part of this show and its success over the last two years we have what's called patreon for those who want to support the show financially for as little as one dollar a month you can become a subscriber and get bonus content early podcast release all kinds of cool behind the scenes stuff and more there's different tiers of membership starting at only one dollar a month and we even have some special merch for you guys who are in it for the long run So please join our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com forward slash dope nostalgia. Hey, I'm Josh Rodriguez. And I'm Mike Zacchio. And we are the the new new pod pod on the block. block. Every week, Mike and I will be breaking down our obsession with everything boy band culture. From bangers to bops to fashion and everything in between. If it's boy band related, we've got you covered. We also want you to be a part of it. So call into our hotline and leave a voicemail for the show. 818-308-4084. Be sure to subscribe, give us five stars, and leave us a review. Follow me at Mike underscore Zacchio. And I'm Josh Rodriguez at Josh underscore Rodriguez underscore. You can follow New Pod on the Block on Instagram at New Pod on the Block. New Pod on the Block. Every week. 
on your favorite podcast platform. This is pretty basic. It just says that you, the Backstreet Boys, agreed to appear at a Burger King yada yada. And what's the yada yada? A little commercial. Forget it. We don't do commercials. Not our style, man. We wouldn't even do this for a lifetime supply of free Whoppers. Does that rock or what? Now get live music from the Millennium Tour and a new song from their upcoming album on three CDs for two ninety nine each with any value meal. you about doing the video for supergirl of course with the cameos oh, yeah. in there you got kevin and howie in the video yes. and and Anne hathaway who's become a huge star over the years yes it's crazy i know she's such a wonderful person did you I have mean, a lot of fun doing the video absolutely absolutely i did um i always had a little bit of a conflict with my with how i looked at the time because speaking from a product angle, I was kind of taken in a direction that was not necessarily me 100%. I mean, I think that's obvious. <laughs> it's obvious now. <laughs> but um, the short hair, was it your idea? My hair was short. It was just like not black. It was, it was blonde. I was, I was a, like a pixie for a very long time with, uh, with blonde hair. And that's how I came into the game was with that. And then we went this other direction, I think as some sort of strategic way to differentiate me from other artists. When mm -hmm. I believe I had all the talent I needed to, to go a different direction and, and still be able to differentiate myself. I think there were more creative ways to go about it. Um, yeah. And plenty of business smarts to make that happen, but that's not how it went. Um, so, but anyway, the, yeah, the machine, exactly. <laughs> We all have seen the matrix now and we understand. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but yes, the video was a blast because getting to meet other people my age too in the business, that was sort of one of my first real connections to just working directly alongside other people in the, the entertainment industry out there. So it was super fun. Everybody was very nice. Anne Hathaway was incredibly friendly and wonderful, um, easy to work with. Everybody at Disney was wonderful to me. Um, I had some really good relationships there too, and still look look at look upon those people very fondly. They were kind and treated me gently, as I was also very a very young young woman. So it was very fun, yeah. And I think that's right. the The cameo, the day that we recorded the cameo stuff, and I went in to do my pieces of that with Anne Hathaway in the diner. That day I got a visit from Whitney Houston and that was like completely unexpected. Wow. She stopped by that day and 
put her arm around me and just told me to keep doing what I was doing. And, and she just encouraged me, I guess, I guess she had heard my music through um, someone who was connected to Disney also. And so she and Bobby and some of the kids came down, but she took me inside and, and walked me around for a little bit. Um, and she was really wonderful. It was, it was something I'll never forget because, well, that was really one of my childhood heroes. I used to sing her yeah. music in my sleep as a six-year-old. Wow. Like literally in my sleep. My dad would be like, you were singing last night. And I was like, I'd be like, what? Yeah. And then I would remember when I was singing, it was her music. So that was really wonderful as well to get to connect with her. What a moment. I know. I know. <laughs> a blessing. For sure. And so with Disney, was that where the Country Bears experience came from too? Yeah. Yes. They, they created that, you know, they created a movie out of the Country Bears. I think it, it was a ride at Disney, if I'm not mistaken. And so they developed a movie around it. And it, some another kind of weird connection that happened there that I didn't really realize until I was in my early 20s was that um, soundtrack, the soundtrack from the Country Bears ended up having on it Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. Mm -hmm. And later in my career, when I started doing more theater work in my early 20s, after kind of exiting Hollywood, I, I eventually, in like the next few years, made it back and went back into theater because I wanted to see if if there was a place there for me to find uh, the right environment, you know, for my expression. Just kind of trying to find my place. And I did a musical with the Opryland Corporation, and it was a Christmas, big Christmas musical. And um, Victor Wooten, his daughter was in that particular musical, and he and I met he and, and actually one of his brothers, I believe, was also there. We met and I ended up recording something with him at that time while I was in town living in Nashville at the time for a while. And he and I ended up circling back to one another in the, in my early 30s before I went on tour with him for three years. Oh, wow. And he, he was like, I don't know if you know this, but I was on that record with Bella Fleck and the Fleck Tones because he, he's their bassist. And he said that you were on that same record. And I said, yeah, I was, but I didn't know who you were back then. I had no idea. That's something to, that's crazy to find out later. <laughs> I know I had no idea. So that was a super fun and working with all the animatron animatronic bears and seeing how those work behind the scenes. Like there's a person operating the bear's head and face. And then there's another person in the suit mm -hmm. doing the other things. I mean, it was a wild thing to see that from, from the back end for sure. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. And then, so the, we're talking probably about 10 plus years later, um, you started performing as Crystal Peterson in the Queen City Band. Yes. Right? yes. So, and then your husband is your drummer. Is he still yes. your drummer? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes, so, he's my drummer. So tell me about that experience and how it led into what you're do doing now with music. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, after coming off of the road, well, actually, while I was still on the road with Victor Wooten, I started feeling like I wanted to start to experiment with, you know, what would it look like if I tried to channel what I believe is my, you know, current musical atmosphere or, or feel and what I would be writing today. And what if I put a band together around that that consisted of my friends, basically, that I know are musicians that I've heard play. Um, 
because my husband and I had done some performing together in my early 20s, just he and I only like piano and drums. And that was really successful. And we really enjoyed ourselves. It was just something kind of a labor of love, something we did together after we first got married, because we we had already been playing together a little bit and we just wanted to to do more. Mm. Um, So it was kind of implied at first that he would be my drummer and we, we just communicate very well musically. So it made a lot of sense to, to keep him doing that. So I did that. I brought in some friends um, to play horns and a friend to play bass, guitar, uh, and a percussion. And um, slowly but surely, more people even joined the band because we would do festivals around the, you know, the region. And other people would say like, hey, do you need a trombone player? Or hey, do you want, you know, so it grew quite a bit. <laughs> It grew to like 11 people. It's kind of insane. But we recorded a record and it was really my first attempt to try and express this next season of my life as a musician and a writer. And mm. having my friends there, a part of that was was really special. Um, it had its challenges too at times, as you could expect, being you're bringing friendship in alongside, you know, something that can be very vulnerable and volatile when you get into the inner parts of who you are and you try and channel those things with other people. That can be a very complicated experience at times for everybody involved because everyone wants also their like we all want to channel something and to bring those things together can be really challenging at times. Mm-hmm. So that experience was a very positive one in that I felt like, OK, I made a lot of relationships through taking a grassroots approach to music. And there are, I was just talking to a guy from, um, from a band last night uh, at a local gig I did here that said he was at a festival that we did a show at and we were in like a barn. We were all sweaty that night. There were about 150 people there, small group, but it was Mm. such a vibrant and intense night with the band in there and everybody else. And we were sweating and dancing and it was amazing. And those relationships are relationships that I still have today. So Mm. quite a bit different from my early, right? The early larger grand scale of things where it seemed like I was sort of over here and being shipped from place to place. That's why I call myself a pro. I was kind of a product being yeah. shipped around doing things. And I still have some of those relationships, but most of them were, were very much based on that supply chain kind of thing. What was going on there. So the queen city band was a situation where it was like a community endeavor and I was really trying to get down to how do I want to engage with my community when it comes to music because my grandmother that was her legacy was Mm. she she played music in her community and she taught people how to play music and she um, was there to support them along with playing live herself and performing every week so I saw that as like wow what a cool life you know you get to have a full life. You don't have to necessarily be on the road all the time, but you can still make these long lasting relationships where you really cultivate something special that is really impactful to that community and to you. So, um, so yeah, that was really fun. And it was very much focused on like kind of a soul and R and B approach, sometimes sort of experimental given that I come, I come from, from very, I guess, very much of a jazz background. My mom's a jazz pianist and, and comes from that position vocally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of fallen in love with jazz music because of its experimental quality. Um, I like improvisation a lot. And something that I found was lacking in the pop world of my early years was the room to stretch out and actually bring the song of the moment 
into the equation. So mm-hmm. like a Miles Davis, who I absolutely adore musically, I adore him because he welcomes all of the all of the possibilities. You can have a map, a song map, that song is a map for the journey, but that journey can take on all kinds of different challenges and new melodies and new things. And um, that's what the Queen City Band really did for me is we, you know, we wrote songs together and then we performed those songs. But when we performed them, we would open some of them up to what might happen there. And that also did what I really, it fulfilled that piece of me that didn't get that early on, Mm -hmm. which was like, I want to connect with people in the moment right now, listen to the heart of the, this collective space and channel whatever that is out right now. Um, and I started then incorporating it into my workshops and other things I was doing at the time um, where people would ask me to, to sing as part of closing out the workshop. And I would just say, let's, let's write something now. Let's create something now. I'll pick a chord pattern and we'll tell me, you know, tell me what you need to hear today or what are you struggling with? Let's talk about it. And let's, so it's kind of like larger scale scale versions of that. Um, So yeah, so the Queen City Band was like the doorway to that. And although we ended up disbanding and we're, we're, we're still friends, you know, we had some challenges at first, but we're, we're still friends to this day and we still high five one another and see each other around town. Um, but ultimately, I, I find that to be a foundational building block in helping me understand how to scope my direction and giving me a space to try new things and to try and translate some of these things into real ideas that other people can see and collaborate on. And it sounds like it's so much more fulfilling um, and it feeds your soul, you know? It does. Yeah, in for sure. In comparison. Yeah. And I mean, even after even after the Queen City Band stuff i i took a i've taken a bit of a break actually but really to take that situation and that um kind of lessons learned from that and go okay you know what did i learn from that and how can i continue to open my world up internally and channel those things that are most authentic and and so i've been just very recently doing some more experimentation you know i always had i actually recorded a, a record that never got put out um, that was like a hip hop slash R&B record. I recorded it in Toronto while I was filming a pilot for Fox um, Pictures. And that record never got out. There was one particular song on it that was put on a DJ Jazzy Jeff mixtape. It was a it was a remix of a Jay-Z song that I you know wrote something over top of. Hmm. But that I do love beats and just putting, taking beats and putting vocals, you know, orchestrating the vocals on top of that foundation of the bass and drums. And I've always been very connected to hip hop music. Um, still some of the central, you know, ins- inspirational things for me are, especially day to day, are the the hip hop groups that integrated jazz, like Tribe Called Quest, mm-hmm. um, Common, um, Jill Scott. Early on, I latched onto some of those things. Music Soul, Ch- Soul Child, Music Soul Child. He's another one that I listened to quite a bit um, and thought, wow, it's this is bringing some of my love of that music from early on when it first emerged in the 90s as like a big thing for all of us that are now in our 40s. You know, we were like, hip hop is a defining part of my culture. Missy Elliott changed yeah. my life. I mean, she really did. And I Very still learn sometimes about and, and think like she's the one person who can just 
say you're worth it. You can do it. Don't give up. Like all of her songs really kind of lead to that end. Mm -hmm. Um, So that bringing some of that onward after the Queen City Band, I ended up working with the guy who was the percussionist in Queen City Band. And he got some beat machines and started just making music. And he was making some music with my husband too and a different thing that they do. And I was like, man, maybe we could just, it could be simple. I started building a, like my husband and I started building a studio in my basement here. And I thought, why don't we just have him come over, bring his beats and we'll just start, just start writing. And so we did. And so I've, I've also put out some just kind of random singles here and there recently. I think most of them I put under the name Chris Tronica, which has become a nickname wow. of mine. A cousin. Like <laughs> because she's like, this is, your music is called Chris Tronica because you can't really explain it. I don't know. I don't That's know why she's name. I like it. <laughs> so I started just doing these songs where it was basically beats and vocals with a few other instruments in there. And that was super fun to go about that iteration. You know, it's kind of like just iterating upon yourself is kind of what I've done is take the lessons learned from the last situation and carry it into the next one and try and continue to develop who I am as a person. I mean, in, in the end, I think we all do this through whatever our passion is. There's no way, you know, if you're a podcaster, you're probably channeling a part of your heart here and iterating upon it as the thing grows, you know, that's why you choose the type of show you do. You right. to make it, you know, it's something that fulfills you that way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You said it so much better than I did in a million words. No, <laughs> not really, but they, but yeah, I see what you're saying. And where can, like, can we find your newest music? Can we purchase it, support it, or find it on a streaming service? Sure. Yeah. It's on yeah. all the major streaming services. Good. Um, so you can find it there and you can also find um, the stuff that I've done with Victor Wooten is on his record. I think I've exposed an, a, a song that he and I just did on our own as well. That's out there under my name. So yeah, if you, if you look me up, you should be able to find me on all of the major streaming services. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm going to add some to my playlist so I can see what's been going on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm going to wrap up, wrap up right away. I just have a couple more quick questions before we do where we go backwards again. Sure. But um, Have you ever stayed in touch with the Backstreet Boys? Yes. Um, periodically, AJ will reach out if they're doing a show in town here. Mm-hmm. Um, the last couple times, I actually haven't been able to make it because it's been so last minute that yeah. I couldn't make it happen. Um, but he's kept in touch with me the most, I think, of, of everyone. Um I recently heard from a a fan, a a gal who runs one of the fan groups for Nick. Mm -hmm. um, And I was going to be connecting there, but that never happened. So, so yeah, basically AJ and I have, have stayed connected loosely since then. Okay. Nice. And then this question I love to wrap up the show with because it's fun. Um, Hold on. My dog is barking. Of course. To answer. This is a good one. I liked her timing. I liked her timing. She wants to answer this final question, which is basically yeah. what kind of either food, fashion trend, clothing item, toy would make you nostalgic for the 90s? Oh my gosh, what a fun yeah. question. I love asking this question. Oh, clothing wise, flannels, always like 
And the yeah. minute I have to take one off to tie around my waist, I'm like, 90s, you know, like, and now too, everybody's wearing this stuff. It's crazy actually mm. to see. My goodness. It's all back. I walked into a Forever 21 probably about six months ago. Yeah. In the fall. Yeah. And it was filled with, you know, those bodysuits that snap. Yes. It had those, it had flannel. It had the, the little backpacks. Oh, no, I did not know they were bringing those back. That's insane. I took a picture of this and I posted it on my Facebook. Like what year is this 1995? <laughs> what year is this? It was, it was like a time warp. It was it's unreal. Weird, isn't it? yeah, yeah. It's super weird. Yeah. I think that and TV, like I always go back to TV shows and I'm like, oh, the nineties, the nineties, you know, mm-hmm. um, Fra- I watch Frasier all the time. Yeah. Probably makes me a nerd, but that's fine. I am a nerd. That's the truth. Um, We all are. We all have our nerd things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I watch that a lot and I'm like, man, this is so, because even the, like the clothing and the decor and the haircuts, Friends is one of my favorite shows still to this day. Yeah. Our kids are watching Friends, you know? I know. I know. So It's crazy, isn't it? And it's funny too, because a lot of the TV shows that were in the eighties and nineties that were popular, sometimes the humor doesn't translate well to where we are now. Right. Yeah. But for some reason, it seems like a lot of the, there are a few of the shows that are still, what's the word? Not current, but they still work. Oh yeah. 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 They're still relevant or something. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I tried watching elf and no, I can't do it. It was one of my favorite shows as a kid. And now I can't do it. <laughs> I get it. I still watch it every year, Christmas. Do you? Yes. And the Grinch. Nice. Oh, no. I mean, I mean, Elf, like the alien, the cartoon. Oh, Elf! Oh! Elf. It came out sound. Maybe it's my Canadian accent. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Elf, so, yeah. the, the Elf. alien guy. <laughs> I can't watch that either, actually. I tried to watch Beavis and Butthead the other day, too, and I was like, I don't no. think I could do this. <laughs> Isn't there a new one out now? I think. Oh, I don't a- know. Is there? Oh. I'm scared. <laughs> Me too. What could it be? So you get what I'm saying about Alf. Okay, that's good. Oh, yeah. totally just, get that. Just, yeah. It's just not funny now, but as a kid, wow, I just thought it was the best thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like, what about... I uh, who's the boss I think that's like 80s right yep. that's to me that's not 90s oh yeah I, it might have ended in the early 90s yeah that's what I thought too yeah makes sense but yeah I don't know if I could watch who's the boss again I should try there's just too much stuff to do <laughs> I know right exactly that's the other thing priorities mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm And I really appreciate you spending time with me, Crystal. It was an honor to talk to you about all of this stuff. So thank you. Of course. Oh no, thank you. This is, it was wild to have this conversation (laughs) and there'll be, there'll definitely be new music coming. I'm, I'm getting ready to start recording some more demos and actually try and do a full length again um, sometime soon. So It'll be interesting. I'm not putting pressure on myself as to, you know, the time frame or whatever, but I, I just feel, you know, you get into these modes where you're like, I'm ready to bring something to life out here, you know? Mm. And I, I've kind of, I feel like I'm in that place now. So that's, that's really wonderful. It's way better oh, to sure. do it without the pressure. Just, you know, do it when yeah. you're feeling creative and ready to do things. That's nice. Exactly. Yeah. All right. You take care. Oh, you too. Thanks a lot. Okay. 
Have a good day. Bye. Social media, yeah, we've got it. Send us an email, dopenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Nostalgia Dope. Or on Insta, dope underscore nostalgia. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work.